Good evening, everybody. Uh, back with another podcast. This podcast is called The Daily Dialectic, I think. Uh, it was also originally called The Correct Line. I might start calling it that more, um, but either way. Um, so today I wanted to talk about a couple things uh, that people had been suggesting for a while. Uh, the first thing I want to talk about is left Catholicism, left Catholics, and how that kind of goes along with the trad trend. And these are, I think, more visible trends um, or tendencies online. And if you're listening to this, you're probably on Twitter a fair amount. So you probably understand these things more than someone who isn't uh, observing them online all the time. But they are part of the larger society and culture. We can observe them a little more online. Um, so I wanted to talk about left Catholicism, left Caths, uh, and how that kind of pairs with this trad lifestyle thing, return to, to tradition and so on. Uh, and then I wanted to talk about this article from First Things, which is a Catholic social policy journal um, called Anti-Fascism Without Fascism that was published a couple weeks ago. Uh, okay, so left Catholics. Um, I wanted to start with this quote from Karl Marx, and if we're talking about the left kind of all goes back to Karl Marx. Um, and so the quote that Marx has about religion is well known, but the full quote is usually not uh, referenced. So the full quote of Marx on religion is, religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people. And so that last part is usually all you ever hear of the quote, the opium of the people, the opium of the masses. And so it gets across this idea that religion like brainwashes you or whatever. And yeah, that's part of it. But the full quote paints sort of the full picture of his critique. The sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of soulless conditions. So as the world is dominated by capitalism and the bourgeoisie and the mass of people, the proletariat, have their labor stolen from them and are constantly exploited, uh, they have to turn to this imaginary world of religion, of heaven, of God, and all of that. Uh, and if we weren't as oppressed, if we didn't live in such heartless, soulless conditions, then we wouldn't have to create this kind of soul and heart and lack of oppression uh, and perfect existence in heaven. Right? It's this compensation or coping mechanism, basically. Um, so left-wing Catholics have been a thing for a while, uh, but it seems like the phenomenon is becoming more pronounced, more visible. Again, I guess because of Twitter, uh, and we're on it a lot, so it seems like a bigger thing perhaps than it is. But I think in general, there is an increase in religiosity, especially among young people. So it also goes with this kind of trad lifestyle thing that is catching on. Um, the world is very atomized and alienated now. We see a lot of commentary about that, uh, more so than ever in COVID world. So even before COVID world started last year, uh, people were, you know, more isolated, alienated, atomized, whatever, or at least they felt that way. Um, so it's pretty understandable that people want to go back, return to a traditional life, and that that's very appealing. And again, that goes along with this kind of Catholic trend. Um, so why left Catholic? Because being left is cooler now. Uh, than being right. Um, so it's kind of like you can have it all. You can be a leftist, whatever the fuck that means. You can be Catholic. You can be trad. Um, and that's sort of this new weird identity that's formulating. Um, 
So the world, again, has never seemed more hopeless for years now, but especially since COVID world started. So people are turning to religion for answers or meaning. This is how it's always sort of gone. Uh, so, you know, looking for ancient ways of living, traditional ways of existence, spiritual answers, all of that. Um, so left Catholic trads, lots of examples of this tendency. Uh, but I think Elizabeth Brunig is probably the best uh, single exemplar of this. So she was a former Washington Post columnist. Now she's a current New York Times columnist, kind of like the token socialist of the bourgeois press. Um, and yeah, she talks about prayer a lot. She claims to be this very orthodox Marxist, whatever. Uh, and she promotes this kind of trad lifestyle thing where she's always, you know, sharing pictures of baked goods and whatever. Um, and people fawn all over it like, oh my God, we have to return to this kind of lifestyle, blah, blah, blah. Um, so that's sort of one major exemplar of all of this. So getting more into the left Catholic nitty gritty, uh, Pope Francis has talked a lot about economic issues, way more than any Pope we've had probably since John Paul II. Um, and when Pope Francis talks about economic issues, he usually frames it in terms of the dignity of labor, that we have to return to a kind of um, labor condition that was more dignified, that wasn't so alienated or atomized or whatever. We have to restore this kind of dignity to work and to labor. So it's kind of fetishizing work. It's kind of this workerist position. Workerism, basically taking work and workers themselves as inherently good um, and as sort of the telos or the final endpoint or aim of politics. Um, so Pope Francis is critical of greed because it's a sin and of inequality because it causes suffering. So his critique of capitalism is basically a kind of humanism. Bourgeois humanism, leftist humanism, Marxist humanism, whatever you want to call it. That's basically what it is. Because, you know, capitalism causes greed, which is a sin, causes inequality, which causes suffering. Uh, it causes undignified labor, undignified work, and work should be dignified, whatever. Um, so that's really where he's coming from. And none of that has anything to do with real Marxism, structural Marxism. Um, and so it doesn't seem too different from like AOC's moral posturing, radical liberal kind of shit. Uh, they're putting kids in cages, whatever. You know, just like AOC, that's not real Marxism. AOC's leftism or Marxism, whatever, is more humanistic and bourgeois. This kind of Catholic leftism, workerism, dignity of labor shit is not real Marxism either. So it's humanism sort of dressing up as Marxism. So left Catholicism is not real Marxism, I don't think, um, for those reasons. And so again, the emphasis on the dignity of work. Dignity is not necessarily a Marxist concept. Um, it's not about restoring lost dignity. That's not the point of Marxism, that uh, capitalism has made us lose our dignity and we have to try to, you know, do a Marxist revolution to get our dignity back. Uh, dignity is kind of a reactionary concept. Um, dignity of work within the bourgeois state, within capitalist conditions, is impossible. So it's kind of like, you know, collaborating, collaborationism with 
the bourgeoisie to try to get dignified labor conditions. It's a fantasy, like everything in religion. So I think it's no mistake, or it's no accident, that left Catholicism um, is Marxist humanism, meaning not real Marxism, and that it concentrates on the dignity of work and dignity in general as like the main goal of all of that activity. Um, because, you know, dignity within the capitalist labor relation within the bourgeois state for the mass of people is basically a fantasy, like everything in religion. So, uh, again, it's no surprise that they would take this kind of um, approach to this. So the left Catholic trad tendency focuses on dignity and alienation and atomization. Atomization meaning like atom, A-T-O-M, um, that everyone's sort of individualized and there are these, these, you know, isolated atoms in parallel, running in parallel to each other and never, you know, interacting or having an encounter that can create something, just these sort of atoms, you know, lined up next to each other. Um, and so people are rejecting this. They want some kind of community. They don't want this, you know, narrow strip of existence. They want more than that. And they're rejecting neoliberalism and all that goes with it because they feel a lack of dignity and an increase in alienation and atomization. Um, and so this is where I think Louis Althusser, the Marxist philosopher, uh, is relevant. So one of his main points is that this fetishism of alienation and authenticity and dignity and so on is not really part of Marxism. So a big part of his philosophical project is to try to uh, extract, or to try to like hunt down and remove uh, the traces of bourgeois humanistic ideology within Marxism itself uh, that Marx, you know, loaded into his system. Um, and so those are ideas about alienation, authenticity, fetishism, dignity, on and on, uh, that Marx mostly formulated in his younger years before he developed the real core Marxist line that is fully expressed in Capital. Uh, and in his early work where he focused on alienation, he's kind of working out the bourgeois ideology of his intellectual environment that he was raised in, as well as his personal bourgeois upbringing. Um, so Althusser is very clear about this, that Marx was always in the process of exercising his bourgeois ideology um, of overcoming the Hegelian idealism and how it's often talked about that, you know, Marx just turned Hegel on his head when Marx was a young man. And then he, you know, invented pure materialism that way. But that's not really the case. Um, and just inverting idealism, as Althusser often says, is not materialism. It's just an inverted idealism that can and does lead to, you know, further mutations of bourgeois idealism. Um, and so I think the kind of bourgeois idealist type of tendency is at work here. Uh, leftists who view alienation as the most important Marxist concern is a religious tendency, which is why left Catholic trad types like it. It goes along with the kind of teleology that Althusser thinks is ingrained in this warped uh, bourgeois form of Marxism. He called it Marxist humanism. And that's one of the main things he attacked in his early writing. Uh, so teleology is a trace for Althusser of idealism, 
and of the bourgeois mind. So what is teleology? It's a way of explaining things um, in terms of their final endpoint, that there is some grand reason orchestrating things towards some final end. Um, and this is clear bourgeois idealism for Althusser. It needs to be removed from Marxist thinking. Teleology goes along with what Althusser calls philosophies of origin. And these are always idealist, not materialist. They're more about religion and morality than philosophy. So being, subject, meaning, teleology, uh, those are all, again, more religious and moral categories than philosophical categories or certainly materialist categories. Um, and so history needs to be thought of not in terms of being or having a subject or even some kind of meaning or final endpoint. And many Marxists do often think of history in terms of um, a subject of history, history as this search for meaning, overcoming alienation and whatever, um, or uh, as going towards this telos, this final end point that we will achieve. Um, and for Althusser, this conceives of history in the wrong way in terms of bourgeois idealist categories, rather than as Marxists should conceive of history as a process obeying certain materialist structures. Uh, so anything that has to do with origin and end for Althusser is a trace of bourgeois Marxist humanism. So what Althusser wants to do is create a philosophy for Marxism to use uh, a properly materialist philosophy. And he doesn't think that that has been developed yet. So in his later work, his what he calls philosophy of the encounter, that's what he tries to do. He tries to create a philosophy of real materialism devoid of traces of bourgeois idealism um, and devoid of humanism as much as possible. And so that means a philosophy without traces of religion and morality. And so I think clearly um, this left Catholic or trad tendency that we're seeing um, is very much a philosophy of religion and morality. It's bourgeois Marxist humanism, more so than it is any kind of materialism. Yeah, and so religion is the pinnacle of bourgeois humanism. And we perfectly can see the bourgeois nature of humanism and Catholicism, a system that claims to help the world, but just crushes and destroys and exploits the world, especially the most vulnerable people within the Catholic Church, of course, young boys. Um, so just like our woke, radlib, bourgeoisie claim to help, but just crush and exploit and destroy. So, you know, Kamala Harris is very woke, but she's this horrible police officer who has destroyed countless lives and on and on. Um, that's what we see in bourgeois humanism, that they, you know, claim to be very helpful and very woke and whatever, but they're completely destructive. And so that's what the Catholic Church is. Um, and so it's interesting that the same types of people who are running away from woke, radical, liberal identity politics, you know, uh, bullshit because they claim to be helping but are just destroying the world as the bourgeoisie always do. It's strange that they're running towards left Catholicism because the Catholic church is the same kind of thing, basically. Um, Okay, so how does Althusser develop this properly materialist philosophy? 
that's mostly a story for another day um, and something that I'm working on writing. But uh, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Okay. Um, so the next thing I wanted to talk about is this article. Um, well, hold on. So yeah, the trad thing, I guess I didn't go into that quite as much. Um, I think you guys know what I'm talking about, sort of fetishizing and idealizing and romanticizing the past that we need to return to before, you know, neoliberal capitalist, uh, atomization and alienation made us so isolated and meaningless and so on. It's this idea that we can find some kind of meaning in a golden past that used to exist, but doesn't exist anymore. Um, and that if we can just sort of unite in a local community sense in that way, and of course the church would play a big social role. So as the liberal state sort of withers away, um, local churches pick up the slack. And so that's a lot of what this trad and left Catholic tendency is about. It's about localism and community. And so the fancy word for that is communitarianism. Communitarianism is basically like a right-wing version of socialism, localized socialism. And it's very vague, and it's basically a sham ideology. Um, and so communitarianism is something I've written a bit about. Um, and so, yeah, this trad tendency um, goes along with this left Catholic tendency, and people who claim some kind of relation to the left are calling themselves trad and Catholic. But for lots of reasons, I don't think it has anything to do with any kind of useful or real left that can, you know, go along with Marxism, really. Okay. Um, so now I wanted to move on to this article from the Catholic social journal First Things called Anti-Fascism Without Fascism, written by Stanley Payne, who's a uh, professor of history. He's the Hillsdale Professor Emeritus of History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Okay. Hillsdale, what's that? Hillsdale is Hillsdale College. It's this extremely conservative um, institution. I think it's in California. Um, and it's basically like Claremont Institute, the university. Um, so I've tweeted a bit and written some longer form stuff about the Claremont Institute, what it is, where it comes from, um, and sort of the play it's making now to appeal to, you know, frustrated or disappointed leftists and Marxists saying, hey, we know that the left is very woke and bad and they're doing cancel culture. So write some leftism and some Marxism for the conservative nationalist, essentially Goldwater and Reagan and Trumpist um, Claremont Institute. And we can do some kind of populism together, basically, right? Uh, so that's the Claremont Institute. And Hillsdale is basically like the, you know, University of the Claremont Institute. So this guy, Stanley Payne, uh, is a professor emeritus there. Uh, emeritus means like you're just really old and they let you keep working there because they want to be nice to you. Um, and so he was writing in First Things, which I've written quite a bit about. Um, in those two articles I wrote about, uh, the realignment back in December. But First Things is, as I mentioned, uh, a social journal for Catholic policy, um, the most prominent one in the country. 
And it's basically like a sister publication of American Affairs, um, which is something I've tweeted about and written about a bit too. Uh, so what is American Affairs? It's this journal that started, I think, in 2018 um, to try to give like intellectual content or intellectual credibility to the phenomenon of Trumpist pseudo-populism. And, you know, it's still an open question if Trumpism was actually populism. I would say probably not. Uh, so, yeah, they're trying to, at American Affairs, um, fill in Trump's empty ideology with, you know, national conservative principles and values and policies that have been very well thought out and very well established for decades. Um, and a lot of what they write at American Affairs is openly religious. And so it's no surprise that it has all of this sort of um, shared DNA with first things. So a lot of the editors uh, and people on the board on American Affairs write at first things and vice versa. Okay. So first things is like the more overtly religious version of American Affairs, but American Affairs is not against religion by any means. Uh, so what is this article about? Again, the title sort of gives you an idea. It's called Anti-Fascism Without Fascism. So he's saying that there's been this big increase in anti-fascist activity over the last, let's say, five years or so, um, ever since Trump came on the scene, um, and that this is bad because there's no fascism for the anti-fascists to be opposing. Okay. Um, the first thing to notice is that he... He seems to think that anti-fascism is like new, but so when he talks about anti-fascists, he's talking about Antifa, which is short for anti-fascism. And you're probably familiar with Antifa. Trump would often complain about it. Uh, but Antifa has been around for a long time. It's not like it just appeared when Trump came on the scene. So there's a long, you know, history of Antifa being a thing and doing basically what they've been doing for the last few years, but now it's just more prominent, um, Although I think the role that they play in society is very much overblown. Um, as is often the case with reactionaries, they overreact to things. Okay. Um, so his thesis, again, is that there's no fascism in America, but we have this rising tide of anti-fascism. And this seems absurd and wrong and even dangerous to him. That having anti-fascism without fascism will, what, lead to the anti-fascist becoming the real fascists themselves. And this is what a lot of people think, that Antifa are the real fascists um, because of, you know, the way they dress all in black, they, you know, and they sort of attack, um, but also sort of their online presence and they're associated with, you know, the radical left. They love to cancel people. They like to get people fired. They're very radical. They want to abolish, you know, police. They want to abolish the family. They want to abolish borders and on and on and on. So that's sort of the threat of anti-fascism that people like uh, Stanley Payne from Hillsdale who write in First Things and the whole American Affairs crowd, whatever, um, that's what they're afraid of. They're afraid of this rising tide of anti-fascism sort of becoming the fascism that they claim to be fighting and that fighting fascism without real fascism existing just creates fascism. That's sort of the problematic that he's taking on. Um, Okay, so Payne is a historian who argues that real fascism, authentic fascism, 
was just confined to Italy, basically, where the word fascism comes from. Um, so he even questions the validity of calling Nazi Germany a form of fascism because it doesn't fit his strict definition um, of, you know, it started in Italy. And so if he had his way, we would just confine fascism to, you know, the period of Mussolini's rule. So from 1925 to 1943, basically. Um, and that, again, it's often applied to Nazi Germany too, but Payne would say that that's wrong and that that's basically just done because Hitler and Mussolini were friends and they were somewhat similar. And so it's, you know, we call the Nazis fascists just because it's convenient. Um, other leaders and other states have been called fascists too. So, you know, uh, Franco in Spain, uh, Salazar in Portugal is a really interesting one. But I'm sure Payne would deny that those people were fascists either. So for him, it basically seems like since we aren't Italy from the 1920s, we can't ever be fascist because fascism can only really exist in that time period in those exact conditions. And with the conscious, intentional effort to be fascist that Mussolini had. Um, and so since we don't have that, then we can't have any fascism in America. So there's zero fascism in America. So for Payne, there needs to be, again, an exact historical recurrence of early 1920s Italian circumstances in order for fascism to exist here. But of course, historical conditions don't repeat exactly. So for him, fascism could never really appear again. So fascism for guys like Payne, um, is really only a historical curiosity, sort of like an antique shop that you walk into and you can, you know, poke around and look at it and maybe learn a thing or two from it, but you can't apply it to anything that's going on. Um, unless you're applying it, of course, to Antifa, which is the real fascism. Um, so we don't have fascism, but we have anti-fascism, which is the real fascism. That's the kind of logic that he's laying out here. Um, so, his article is a response to all the talk about how Donald Trump and Trumpism represents a kind of neo-fascism in American politics, culture, and society. Um, and it's interesting that this article came out January 22nd, just a couple weeks after the raid or attack or whatever you want to call it on the U.S. Capitol, which a lot of people took to be, you know, some kind of extremist, worrying, perhaps fascist um, <laughs> event. Um and so Payne and First Things come out with this article about how, oh, there's no fascism here. Anti-fascism is the real fascism. Um, but of course, Antifa didn't, you know, invade the U.S. Capitol building. Um, can you imagine what these people would be saying if they did? Okay. So I think the wrong way to look at this is, you know, saying that uh, trying to compare Donald Trump to Mussolini or to Hitler and saying that since Trump is not the same as those two people, then he can't be a fascist. Because obviously he's not going to be the same. And obviously Trumpism is not going to be the same as the Italian fascist movement that Mussolini started and so on. Um, and so you're never going to find that exact historical overlap that these people seem to require. Um, and it's interesting how they never make generalizations um, when it doesn't suit them, but reactionaries always make generalizations when it does suit them. So, you know, calling Donald Trump or Trumpism a fascist or having fascist impulses or whatever, that would be like unfair to Donald Trump. So we always have to be fair, which is of course hypocritical because these reactionaries are never actually fair except for when it suits them. 
and they're never, you know, concerned with facts or real distinctions, except for when it suits them. Um, of course, as everyone knows. So I think their approach is the wrong way to think about this. Not that certain individuals or tendencies represent a neo-fascist current, but rather that America is a fascist country. Uh, so again, the way that guys like Payne at First Things and the American Affairs people approach this is to say, oh, Donald Trump isn't, again, exactly the same as Mussolini, so and that's the only real fascism, so we can't have real fascism here. Um, and of course, Trump isn't that different <laughs> from Mussolini. Uh, he's not the exact same because the conditions and the you know time period are different. Um, but I think if one were so inclined, one could probably find lots of uh, historical overlap between them. But that's not what they want to do. They just want to say that they're not exactly the same, so it's not real fascism. Okay. Um, but again, I think the way to think about this in a more interesting way is to realize that even if this or that leader or party or event or phenomenon or whatever uh, isn't fully fascist, America is a fascist country. <laughs> that's what we are. So, of course, fascism is going to constantly be bubbling up spontaneously and unconsciously. That's also how fascism works. These people think that there needs to be a, you know, intentionality and consciousness explicitly behind it. Group, like a group of people saying, we're going to do fascism now. But that's not really how it works. Um, okay, so America's a fascist country. How is it a fascist country? Uh, well, lots of reasons. Um, so, you know, Go back to how Hitler was, Hitler and the Nazis were very inspired by America. Um, so, you know, America's history of genocide of the Native Americans, its history of slavery and then segregation with Jim Crow after slavery ended. Very inspiring to the Nazis. They learned a lot from that. Um, specifically the 1924 Immigration Act, which was very restrictive and very limiting on who could enter the country based on ethnicity and race and so on. Um, that was a huge inspiration to the Nazis, uh, specifically. You know, no other country supported the Nazis more than America in terms of leading industrialists. Um, lots of information about that. Henry Ford, of course, uh, loved the Nazis. Um, lots of leading companies that are still around today. IBM, uh, Johnson & Johnson, which you're hearing a lot about lately because they've developed the first um, single shot vaccine for COVID. Um, and of course, you know, in 1939, they had a big rally at Madison Square Garden right in Manhattan for the Nazi party, um, the theme of which was pro-Americanism. And if you've seen the picture of the um, rally that they had for the Nazis in, at Madison Square Garden, there's a big uh, banner of George Washington. Um, so, you know, showing that <laughs> George Washington and Americanism are fully compatible with what they were doing over in Germany. Uh, those quirky folks. Uh, so I think that's the way to think about whether or not America is a fascist country is looking at our history and saying that clearly <laughs> America is and always has been a fascist country. So I think it's somewhat warranted to say that if we have a guy like Donald Trump as our president, as we did, um, who has, as Glenn Greenwald said, fascist impulses or fascist tendencies, um, leading this country with a long history of fascism, I think it's okay to say that maybe there's some fascism here. Um, 
and that maybe opposing it would not be the worst thing in the world. Um, and of course, Glenn Greenwald basically made his racket or his angle or grift or whatever you want to call it during the Trump years, uh, saying that, oh, Trump's not that bad. He's not a real fascist. When the real fascists get here, then it will be bad. Um, all he ever really allowed was that Trump perhaps has fascist impulses. Um, but then the question that raises is, okay, <laughs> if Trump has fascist impulses, we know that Trump is a pretty impulsive person. I can't think of anyone more impulsive than Trump or really any more defining quality of him than impulsiveness. Um, so if he has fascist impulses, is he controlling them? Does Donald Trump have a lot of self-control? I would say probably not. So, you know, if, if you admit that Trump has fascist impulses that, and he's the president uh, of a country with a lot of fascist history and Trump doesn't contain his impulses well, it seems kind of strange to spend all your time, as Greenwald has, uh, saying that there's no real fascism going on here. Weird. Um, okay, so I think another important um, way to understand how America has you know, long been a fascist country is looking at what we've been devoted to um, after World War II, during the post-war period. So I think more than anything else, there's been one mission for America ever since World War II ended, and that has been a worldwide offensive against communism. That's really it. That's what America's been about, by and large, ever since World War II ended. Um, and so what does that mean? If we are the global leaders against communism, as we have been since World War II ended, who does that put us in league with? Well, we're picking up the torch for the fascists that failed. So really the, one of the, you know, guiding principles of Italian and German fascism was to defeat communism. And once the Axis powers, Italy, Germany, Japan, uh, were defeated, guess who took over their <laughs> fucking, uh, program? The United States. So, Italy and Germany during World War II were the main enemies of global communism. And then right after they were defeated, the United States became the main enemy of global communism. And we were much better at fighting it <laughs> than the Italians and the Germans were. Um, we brag about how we defeated global communism. You know, that's what Ronald Reagan and Barry Goldwater and all of them, that whole national conservative tendency, um, that sort of the thing that they're most proud of for American history in the 20th century. Uh, so again, a worldwide offensive for decades against communism is a pretty good definition of fascism. And that's all that America has been about since World War II ended, basically. Um, so what is fascism really? Lots of ways to think about it. Um, but I think the most commonly used sort of like pocket definition of fascism is the merger of business and society or the merger of corporations and the state running society like a business. And so this has been the case in America for a long time. That's basically what neoliberalism is. It's applying market logic and corporate logic to all of society, to all of politics, all of culture. That's basically what neoliberalism is. So I don't see too much difference between neoliberalism and fascism. Um, and especially 
you know, this neoliberal turn, roughly starting in the 1970s at the end of the New Deal period, it was this um, offensive by the bourgeoisie against the mass of people who had benefited from the New Deal reforms. So just as um, America after the war was all about an offensive against communism, the neoliberal period was all about an offensive against the social democracy of the New Deal period. Okay. Uh, so yeah. And so especially adding this neoliberal tendency, which is, you know, basically fascist in terms of the merger of business and society, uh, to America, which has all kinds of problems with race and bigotry and all of that, um, I think makes it pretty clear that um, it's okay to call it fascism. So yeah, market logic added to society on top of a deeply racist and, you know, reactionary society, that's what America is, um, shouldn't be any surprise that fascist tendencies are emerging. And it would be, and it's weird to deny that. Um, and so again, if we can kind of conflate neoliberalism with a form of fascism, um, then we can understand Trump more clearly, I think. So Trump is not anything new or different necessarily. And this is where the people, you know, complaining about fascism get it wrong. They sort of make it seem like everything was fine. And then Trump came on the scene and started doing fascism. And now we're fascist. But that's not the case. Trump is kind of the you know, logical culmination of decades of neoliberal fascism. Um, Trump is not some outlier. He isn't some like weird new type of fascist dictator um, he's not alien to neoliberalism as some think. He is the pinnacle of neoliberalism. So there's, to some extent, this idea out there that Trump was, you know, a reaction against Obama and Biden and Hillary Clinton neoliberalism, and that he's like the, you know, solution to it or cure for it. But that is not the case at all. Trump is, in some ways, the pinnacle of neoliberalism. Every bit as much as Hillary Clinton Obama, whatever. Uh, Trump is good at going against the cultural signifiers of neoliberalism. But at the most fundamental material level, um, Trump is the most neoliberal president because what is neoliberalism really about? It's about slashing taxes for corporations and the rich and lifting regulations on them and so on. Um, and Trump did more of that than any president since Reagan, um, or even more, more than Reagan. So, you know, Trump himself is more business than man. He is a walking business. <laughs> um, and that is neoliberalism. And, you know, when Trump, Trump's whole sales pitch during the um, campaign in 2015 and 2016 was basically, you know, I'm not a politician. I'm going to run society like a business, and that's going to be better. And again, applying business and market logic to politics and society is what neoliberalism is. And it's not too different from what fascism is. So Trump is, in all of these ways, the neoliberal par excellence, um, which makes him pretty fascist, I would say. 
And so, you know, it should be obvious that all of this applies to Obama as well. Um, Obama is a kind of progressive neoliberalism, woke fascism, we can call it. Um, and Trump is sort of the flip side of the coin, but it's still the same kind of thing, reactionary neoliberalism. Um, is it more fascist than progressive, woke, neoliberal, quasi-fascism? I would say probably not. Um, it's a little clearer, I guess, because again, Obama was doing a lot of the same policies that, you know, Trump was accused of being a fascist for. Kids in cages, that started, that happened under Obama. Uh, Obama was, re- was referred to as the deporter in chief because of his strict immigration policies and so on. Um, Trump kind of escalated it. He built a fucking border wall. He wanted to ban Muslims. Uh, he way escalated the drone war and on and on. Um, okay. So again, I think Trump embodied fascism in one person in the sense of, I am a business. Um, and that's the embodiment of neoliberalism more than anything. Uh, he crystallized and embodied this, a lot of these latent tendencies. And so of course we're all talking about it more because neoliberalism, which for the reasons I've been describing is fascist has never been so personified as it was under Trump. Um, Obama was much less of an embodiment of the state type of guy. Like Obama had a big ego, whatever, but not quite as much as Trump. So Trump, you know, he said, I alone can fix our problems. Um, it was all about him. Not that Obama wasn't that way, but Trump kind of was a more high octane way of doing it. Um, and so again, all of these fascist tendencies that have been latent within America, going back to its founding, um, and especially in the early 20th century with the anti-immigration law, the escalation of Jim Crow, um, which inspired the Nazis and so on, um, and add that on to the neoliberal turn in the 1970s, which is fairly fascist for the reasons I've been saying, all of that was there. And Obama was an expression of it. But again, he was sort of a polite expression of it, a woke expression of it, a progressive expression of it. Whereas Trump is a much more rude and overt and indiscreet uh, expression of it. And so it seems like fascism just fell out of the sky with Donald Trump. But that's not the case. Okay. Um, and it's interesting because I think guys like Stanley Payne who wrote this article about how we have anti-fascism without fascism, they would probably describe Obama as a fascist, liberal fascist. Um, so, you know, if you watch Fox News nowadays, all they were talking about is how liberals are doing fascism because they're censoring everything and wokeness and cancel culture and whatever. Um, and so I think there's very little difference between Trump and Biden or even Trump and Obama in terms of their actual material economic policies. Uh, so if you're going to call one, if you're going to call Trump a fascist, I think, or, you know, they call Biden and Obama fascist, basically. Um, then I think clearly that applies to Trump because he has the same economic policies. Um, okay. Another big part of fascism is the merger of religion or church and society. Um, and Trump, of course, very much supported this. Uh, he filled his administration with basically Catholic extremist psychos, uh, Mike Pompeo, Mike Pence, Bill Barr, 
Um, Mick Mulvaney was a big one. Kellyanne Conway. Those are just a few off the top of my head. Um, of course, he loaded, you know, the, the Supreme Court with Catholic psychos who will be there forever. Um, you know, and Trump isn't religious. Um, he, he's not like a God-fearing church-like man. He's been married, what, three times, five different kids with those three women. Um, not like a pious man, but he was smart enough to know that he needed the support of Catholic political power and of the, you know, evangelical mass base that the conservative Republicans in America, uh, rely upon. And so he reached out to them and that's why Mike Pence was his vice president. Um, and he wouldn't have won without making that kind of alliance. And he knows that. Um, and you know, the, the kind of Christian nationalist forces that he aligned with, they know that they wouldn't have been able to get their agenda through in the big way that they did when Trump was president, if they didn't make this alliance with this, you know, horrible, godless Manhattan fucking landlord, Donald Trump. Um, and so that's, I think, a big part of what we can probably call fascism, this merger, again, of church and state, um, a kind of Christianized fascism, a kind of political theology ascendant. Um, and again, this isn't too different from neoliberalism. Neoliberalism is political theology. Um, you know, a lot of business thinking is ingrained in um, American Christianity nowadays. Um, so how else uh, can we think about this? Neoliberalism is about free flow for global capital, but not for people. So it's a contradiction. So neoliberalism, despite its cosmopolitan globalist rhetoric leads to a kind of enforcement of borders and barriers, cracking down on the free flow of people at the same time as it optimizes for the free flow of capital. So capital can move with increasing ease and efficiency. That's what neoliberalism is about. Uh, But people are very restricted. People can't move. Capital can move. People can't. And what was Donald Trump about more than that, you know, Trump was all about borders and restricting the free movement of people. And that's very much neoliberalism too. So for all of those reasons, I think Trump um, can be described as neoliberal, which can also be described as fascist. And it's okay to think about that or to try to conceptualize it or theorize it in the way I've been trying to do it. Um, but again, there's so much pushback against it. So we have these two extremes these sort of hysterical, bedwetting, liberal, annoying idiots who call everything fascist, who call Trump Hitler, you know, all that shit, very dumb, very annoying, low IQ, not serious. But we have the other extreme where they'll just say that Antifa is the only fascism and that there's no history of fascism in America. There's no latent fascist tendencies. They would never get into the you know overlap of neoliberalism and fascism. Um, they would just say that Antifa are the only fascists and that's it. They would say that, well, fascism existed in Italy in the 1920s and we're not 1920s Italy, so we can't have fascism here, right? And I think both of those approaches are not useful. So what I've been trying to do here, um, I don't know, is offer an alternative. Um, okay. I think that's about enough for now. So, um, bye.